Right, good morning everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning here at Lighthouse Discipleship Center. My name is Dave Everett and we're going to be continuing our teaching this morning on being established in righteousness. This will be part thir uh, 12 or 13. I forget the number. But this is uh, this teaching that I have been teaching throughout the uh, duration of this ministry. I teach it periodically. And uh, I've actually, over the time, I've, I've broken this teaching into six segments and we're in the middle of segment number five, five and six, uh, right now, with the subtitle uh, that I've titled The Testimony of Scripture. So I'll explain more about that in just a minute, and we'll get into it in just a second. Just so you know, all of our teachings are archived on our, um, sorry, our website at lighthousediscipleship.org, as well as our YouTube channel, Lighthouse Discipleship Center. And we want to say thank you to all those who have partnered with us with their tithes and their offerings, in case you're wanting to know how to do so. You can simply do so by going to our website, again, at lighthousesheblesship.org. Go to the give page in the top right corner. There's a blue button, and you can give them anywhere around the world. Anyway, uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our teaching this morning. We are talking about being established in righteousness. We're the subtitle right now in segment number five of six. on the title, The Testimony of Scripture. So with that, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 3. We'll kick it off this morning. Romans chapter 3, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We'll come back to this. Even the righteous God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. But there's a comma, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation for, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, and that he might be just and the justifier of, him, of the one who puts her faith, who has faith in Jesus. So the main text that we have in this segment of our teaching is from Romans chapter 3, verses 20-21. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, but by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteous God, apart from the law, is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So again, as I've been saying many, many, for many weeks, the law is the knowledge of sin, and the gospel reveals righteousness. The gospel reveals righteousness, and the law is the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, one reveals sin, one reveals righteousness. Okay, and it's important that we we understand that. So if we are going around and revealing people's sin, we're just giving them law. Okay, now that's a true statement. We've all let me go back. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's law. Okay. But the gospel, the good news, is that we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, revealing righteousness. Okay? Whom God has set forth as propitiation for our sin to, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate the present time his righteousness. So the gospel reveals righteousness, whereas the law reveals sin. So let me get caught up where we are. So... We have established that point, and just a little bit of review, I'm going a little fast in the review, and then I'll hopefully slow down. But now, 
before death. And now, the righteousness apart from the law is revealed. It's revealed apart from the law. But at the same point in time, it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that can be confusing to a lot of people. How can something be revealed without it and yet be witnessed with it? Okay? And that's where we are trying to bring some conclusion. Now, I've also made the statement in previous weeks that whenever you hear the word scripture, in the New Testament especially, now, I'll make a disclaimer, and I've made it before, that we believe the New Testament includes script, is, is, is included in scripture. However, when Paul and, and the, the apostles wrote the letters, when Jesus made Excuse me. Statements that were recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, and they used the word scripture. The New Testament didn't exist yet. It wasn't written yet. It was being written in many in, in these New Testament books, but they were referring to the Old Testament when they made that statement. <coughs> we can't. You know. Anyway, I need to get off my treadmill. But anyway, that's important that we understand. Okay, that will come into play in just a few minutes. So, and the law, the law, and the prophets. Sometimes it's called the law and the psalms. And we get far enough, we'll get there in the day, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll make that conclusion too. So the the, the righteousness of God. That we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being established in righteousness. Righteousness is revealed is not revealed by the law, because the law reveals sin. Okay. The gospel reveals righteousness. Okay? So righteousness is, is not revealed by the law, but it's witnessed by the law. Okay? It's given, a, what's a witness? A witness on the, on the witness stand, here, at least here in America, gives a testimony to what they heard, see, or know. Okay? And so, the scriptures, the law, the, the law of the prophets give testimony to this righteousness that is now revealed apart from the law. In other words, the law is revealing, not only is righteousness revealed, but righteousness is revealed without self. Okay, it's, it's, it's apart from the law. Anyway, we'll get into that. That's what we're teaching. That's what we're teaching right now. So one of the other main scriptures that we used last week was 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to, 5, to 16. So far, we're going to get through even chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. But we pick it up and we've read this scripture many times throughout this series. But their minds, he's talking about those in the Old Testament, were blinded. For until this day, the same bell remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, and I didn't say it, Paul said it, scripture says it, that the Old Testament served as a veil blinding people's minds. Okay? Because the veil is taken away in Christ. There's only one way to remove the veil, and that is to preach Christ, the New Testament. The Old Testament is a veil. When the, till, well, until this day, the same veil remains in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. Okay? But even to this day, when Moses is read after the Old Testament, a veil lies on their heart. So the Old Testament can, if you don't have a revelation of the gospel... If you don't have a revelation of righteousness, the Old Testament will serve as a veil to blind your heart and your minds. Okay? It goes on to say, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, this veil is taken away. The Old Testament is Christ concealed 
and the New Testament is Christ revealed. And we're going to bring that out even more clearly this morning. Okay? Is, is the Old Testament against the law? No, it's a foreshadow. There's a veil over it. And we'll see, we talked about it last week, we'll see again that it's a mystery. It was a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's revealed in Christ. And us the hope of glory in the New Testament. Okay? Are we saying that the Old Testament didn't have glory? Yeah, they did have glory. And if you read the preceding verses, verses 7 through 9 in the same chapter, Paul, Paul brings out how the Old Testament had glory, but the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more glory. Okay? In the Old Testament, and in that context, verses 10 through 13, he says how the, when the law was read, they had to put a veil over Moses' face. Okay? And that glory was fading. Okay? But the Old Testament serves as a veil, <coughs> blinding your minds and hearts, and there's only one way to remove that veil. You can't argue it out. You can't debate it out. It has to come by revelation by the Holy Spirit when you see Jesus. Only by, when you, when only the veil is taken away in Christ. And only one turns the Lord, that veil is removed. So you can see the mystery of the gospel, the mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, which I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Okay, and so that's what we read. Now, are we, you see, when we're talking about this veil, this Old Testament veil that blinds people's minds and hearts, okay, we are, are we saying the law is not good? No, the law is holy and good. Okay? But the law can't make you holy and good. Just because you keep the law, and we've all broken it, like a glass window, like a glass pane, we have, whether we've sent a BB through it, or we've smashed a big rock through it, or smashed it with a baseball bat, or just ran through it, we've all broken the window. We've all broken the law, and the law says if you break one of it, you break them all of it. So, uh, it doesn't matter how, it, you know, none, none of us wants to be the best sinner in hell. But Lord, I only broke a little bit. It doesn't work that way. Sin is sin. It, it doesn't grade on the curve. It doesn't matter how much or how little. Sin is sin, and the penalty for sin is death. That's why Jesus became our sin and crucified our sin. That we might become the righteous God in him. He was raised for our justification. He was our propitiation so that we, he could be just and justifying us to put our faith in him. He was our substitute. And he justified us freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, But the law is holy. But the law can't make you holy. You can't rub it. You can't memorize it. You can't fulfill it. You've already, bro you've already broken it. It's broken. Okay? And so, the law can't make you holy. The law is a ministry of condemnation and death. It can only condemn, and it can only sentence you to die. It cannot, and it, the law is not the ministry of righteousness. The law is not the ministry of reconciliation. The law is not the ministry of the Spirit. The law is the ministry of condemnation and death. Why? Why? Because we need to know we are a sinner, or we were a sinner, and we need Jesus. We need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. The law pointed that out. The law magnifies sin in the sense that 
so we can realize we are of all men are most are most miserable unless we have a savior because we can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save us. Even if you repent and stop sinning, if you don't receive Jesus, you're going to hell. There's only one way to go to heaven, and there's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through the blood of Jesus. Nothing else will save you. Am I saying that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not what I'm teaching at all, because grace teaches you to deny godliness. We await the righteousness of sin not. I'm not saying that we don't live holy. I'm saying the only way to get holy is through the blood of Jesus. The law can't make you holy. The law can't make you good. Okay? For, for it, going back to our scriptures in Romans 3. For by the deeds of the law, by your performance of keeping the law, no flesh can be justified. You can't. It can't happen. Whether you agree with that or don't agree with that is not the point. Because whether you argue with scripture or don't, does not, it's not a matter of your opinion. It's the way it works. By the deed of the law, no flesh will be justified. In his sight. I don't care about who in anyone else's sight. Because he's a judge. And he's just and justified those who put their faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. If my opinion and your opinion doesn't measure up with God's opinion, in his sight... Let God be true and every man a liar. Okay? But by the deed of the law, no flesh can be justified. Okay? Those who attempt to be justified by the law, we fall from grace. We become estranged from Christ. <coughs> if you are attempting to be justified by keeping the law, you're falling from grace. You are estranged from Christ. You, Christ has become no effect to you. Those are some strong words. Many religious people don't like these words. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. If the word of God offends you, then the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with you. And I don't say this to offend you more. I say this to help you. Okay? Some of us need to let the Word of God to get in the way of our theology. Okay? It goes on. I mean, also, is the law then against the promises of God? Absolutely not. Certainly not. That's not what Paul's teaching. That's not what I'm teaching. The law is not against the promise of God. <coughs> Before there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture... Old Testament, the law, has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, you and I might not fully understand that as to why that's the case, but that's the case. The law, the law is not against the promise of God. If there was a law that we could be saved and become righteous, salvation would have come through the law. But it's not. It doesn't exist. It can't happen. 
It can't happen anymore. You can have dry water or cold fire. It just it just can't have it. It doesn't work that way. But the scripture, the law, has confined all under sin. That the promise might by, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law is holy and good. But the law can't make you holy and good. In fact, what made the law holy? When there is a testament or covenant, there must also be necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since they have no power while a testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant, that's the law, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses, that's the law, had spoken every creature to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the, both the book itself and the people. The law was whole, became holy by the blood. You and I, the people, become holy by the blood. That's how it happened in the first covenant. That's how it happens in the new covenant. Well, this is the blood of the covenant. What makes the covenant in the new covenant? The blood of Jesus. Okay? I don't have time to go back to my scripture there from Romans chapter 3, verse 25. But he has redeemed us by his blood. Becoming a propitiation for us. The blood of Jesus makes us holy. The blood of the blood made the law, made the law holy. And the law can't make you holy because the law is not the source. The law is not the source of holiness. <coughs> the blood, the blood of Christ, is the source of holiness. Now, if you continue to read in Romans chapter ten, that even in the Old Testament. The blood of cows and goats and different things could not could not make anything holy, really. It was a substitute. It was a it was a foreshadow until the real blood came, the blood of Jesus. It was a temporary because if it could say one of the evidences that it did not truly make you holy is that they had to keep doing it. <laughs> They did a burnt offering twice a day, every day. Year after year, they did the, 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 the Passover. And there's so many other sacrifices that I don't have time to go, go into it all. But the priests were constantly busy shedding blood of the blood of the blood of cows and goats and lambs, turtle doves and whatnot. I mean, it was a bloody job. And they, they did a continuing, continuing, continuing until Jesus came. And he died once and for all, and then he sat down. There was not a chair in the Old Testament, but was, was Jesus sat down of his majesty. Why did he sit down and make his enemies his footstool? Because he finished the job once and for all. And Jesus, we are holy by the blood of Jesus. This is the blood of the covenant. Jesus said this at the last Passover before the cross. Paul echoed this in Corinthians when he said, we talked about the table of remembrance, the blood of his covenant. 
Oh, the blood of Jesus. Okay. So this is a covenant God has commanded you. He has the blood that he's enjoined into us. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But there is shedding of blood. <coughs> and our sins can be remitted. And only can be remitted through the blood of Jesus. Excuse me. Last week we also went to Colossians. In Colossians we said, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from the generations. Talking about the Old Testament. But now has been revealed to the saints. To them God will we will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. But among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God, this was a mystery in the Old Testament. But now it has been revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect. Where? In Christ. Not by keeping the law. We don't present every man perfect because they kept the law. We don't keep every man perfect because they repented. We keep every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, am I against repentance? No. But we're not just repenting from sin. We're repenting, we are turning to Jesus and turning from sin. If all we do is turn from sin, but we never turn to Jesus, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. We're not just turning from sin and not turning to Jesus. Because if we don't turn to Jesus and we go, all we do is turn from sin, we're still going to hell. We got quiet in this Presbyterian house. Okay? We need to turn to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He, Christ in us is the hope of glory. He's the mystery. We are redeemed. Our sins are remitted by his blood and his blood alone. If all we do is turn from sin, see, Christianity is not behavior modification. Christianity is a relationship with God. And in that relationship, our behavior will change. Why? Because we are crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And Christ who is living in us does not have a sin problem. His grace teaches us to deny godliness. We awake to righteousness and sin not. We reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We walk in the Spirit and we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I can keep going on and on and all day. I can give you over 300 scriptures talking about how we turn to Jesus. And not just from sin. If you will focus on turning to Jesus, you will stop sinning. Because you can't be in a close relationship with God through Jesus Christ and be sinning. It doesn't work. That's repentance. Okay? If all you do is repent from sin and stop sinning, but you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that is not Christianity. Christianity. 
Christianity. That's called religion. Because you're putting faith in what you do or don't do. You're not putting your faith in Jesus. And letting him live his life through you. If all you're doing is behavior modification and stop sinning, sinning, but you don't have a relationship with God where he is living his life through you, that is not Christianity. That is not salvation. That is not righteousness. That's called self-righteousness, not the true righteousness of God. Am I, am I endorsing sin? Absolutely not. I'm saying Christ needs to live in you and through you, and Christ who's in you will not and cannot sin. I'm trying to set you free from sin. I'm not endorsing sin. I'm not letting sin abound. Grace may abound all the more. That's not what we're teaching. Because that's not grace. Grace will free you from sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, because you are under grace. Grace gives you dominion to not sin no more. Grace teaches you and enables you not to sin. Those who think grace is in a license to sin have never heard from grace and are lying to the Holy Spirit. Because that is not grace. Grace will teach you to live a holy, godly life. But it's not you who's living a holy life. It's Christ in you. You can't do it. You couldn't do it before. You can't do it now. Temperance is not the fruit of the flesh. Temperance is the fruit of the spirit. You walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You don't get it all together and then receive Jesus. That's called Antichrist. Instead of Christ, you, you, if you're saying you can save yourself without Jesus, you, that's the spirit of Antichrist to the core. I'm not preaching a license of sin. I'm preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so I want you free from sin. I want you free from a life of sin, but you need you can only find that through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, and Jesus alone. Okay? So, Paul says, when we are preaching and warning every man, teaching every man, and always wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in Romans 16, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of the book of Romans, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to what? The revelation of the mystery. What mystery? The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. The, Christ, the mystery that's being now revealed to the saints. Okay? According to the revelation, the mystery kept secret since the world began. But now, that's the third time we see that phrase, but now made manifest by the prophetic scripture. There's the witness, the witness of Scripture, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, because the just lives by his faith. Okay, so we've been talking about, I'm really trying to get to here, and I, ha I, have, I have tapped into here, okay, with the testimony of Scripture, but I'm also going back and forth between the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified, but also... The witness of testimony of Scripture. Because everything I've been teaching so far in this segment has been all about how Scripture testifies of this righteousness being revealed now without the law. The law can't justify you. Okay? 
So, going back to Corinthians, but their minds were blinded, for to this day the same veil remains and lifted in the, in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, a lot of us have taken this verse out of context and applied it, and in many of those cases, it, it still fits. Okay. But it fits even more beautifully when you keep it in context. Because when we, when the veil is removed, because we turn to the Lord, there's going to be freedom. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Freedom from a hard taskmaster, which is the law, our tutor. The ministry of condemnation and death, because now we are under the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of reconciliation. Are you following me? There's freedom in that. There's not freedom to sin. There's freedom to live a godly, holy life. There's not freedom being alienated from the life of God. There's freedom to be in right relationship with God. And holy calling, having koinonia with God. Fellowship with God. Where he lives in you and he lives through you. But we all, with our unveiled face. Well, how do we remove the face? We remove the, how do we, excuse me, how did we remove the veil? How did our faith become unveiled? When we received Jesus. The veil was taken away in Christ. When we turned to the Lord, the veil was taken away. So now we, with our unveiled face, we're beholding. And I'm going to have a whole last segment about this word beholding, seeing with the mind. There's something that we need to see. We need, to, we need to be steadfast in our gaze. We need to focus on it and focus on it alone. We need to behold it. We need to see with the mind that as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're beholding. We're looking into the Word of God, which serves as a mirror. And when we look into the mirror of God's Word, we are seeing his glory, not our glory. A mirror is a reflective device. And when I look into the mirror, I see, I see my own image. But when we look into the mirror of God's word, we should be seeing his glory, not our glory. Why? Because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are crucified with Christ. We died. And it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And we are seeing his glory, not our glory. Why? Because we are the righteous of God in him. We are in Christ. We've been redeemed. And when we begin to behold his glory, not our glory, in the manner, we'll be transformed. Just like a caterpillar to a butterfly. A butterfly. A frog to a tadpole to a frog will be transformed, metamorphosis, into the same image. What image? The image that we are beholding in the mirror. And we're going to do this from glory to glory. We mean glory to glory. He just said in verses uh, 10 to 13 at the same chapter, he just said that the glory of the Old Testament, which is the ministry of condemnation that had glory, but the ministry of the new covenant, which is 
the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit, exceed much more glory. So we are going to be transformed into the same image from the glory of the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit. No, I'm sorry. From the ministry of condemnation and death to the ministry of the Spirit. <coughs> ministry of righteousness. Just by the Spirit of the Lord. What's the Spirit of the Lord? The ministry of righteousness. So we are going to be transformed from image to image, from the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness. And we're going to do this by the ministry of the Spirit, which is the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of righteousness is going to transform our lives. We're not going to change our lives. That's why I said when we repent and turn to Jesus, He will change us and transform our lives, our desires, and our behaviors in the way that we speak, in the way that we live, from the inside out, not the outside in. See, I use this illustration a lot, too. You know, where we just had Christmas about a month ago, and I love Christmas time, and I love the Christmas trees. But one thing about Christmas tree, in many cases, they're fake. Now, you might go out in the woods and chop down your own tree and decorate it, but that tree is dying, and I mean, it's, you might put it in water, but unless you replant that tree, it's going to die. But some of us will get an artificial tree. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not speaking against that, so don't, don't get all religious on me. Okay. But an, art, an artificial Christmas tree is fake. And even with it, whether you have a real tree or an artificial tree, you're going to put things on that tree that are, that are against its nature. Ornaments. Trees don't grow ornaments. Okay. You might put lights. You might put garland. You might put all kinds of ornaments and bulbs and whatnot. You're going to adorn that tree to make it look pretty and festive. But it's going to have fruit on it that's not natural fruit to itself. What do pine trees produce? Well, most of them produce pine cones. Okay? And some of you will put pine cones that are not the pine cones that go with that tree. Uh, there might be another evergreen tree. Uh, but that one did not produce that pine cone. Okay? Anyway, again, don't miss my point. But a fruit tree, in comparison, a fruit tree, let's just say an apple tree or an orange tree, is going to produce fruit from within. Whereas a Christmas tree is adorned with ornaments and fruit on the outside. I mean, sometimes we put apple, fake apples on our, 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 our Christmas tree, so we have fruit on there. Okay? So, but my point is, we are adorning, ador am I saying that right? Adorning that tree with things that are against its nature. It didn't produce it from within. It was, it was garnished, if I can, on the outside with all kinds of things that are not its nature. Okay? But a fruit tree will produce things from within, from the sap, from the, the vine from within. An apple tree is not going to produce pears. It's not going to produce peaches or apricots or any other thing like that because it's not its nature. See, when we are in Christ and we are transformed from image to image by his glory, we will start producing the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness from within versus us trying to do it religiously without a relationship with God. I want you to live holy. I want you to live godly. 
I want you to live free from sin. I want you to live righteously. I want you to obey God. I want you to live a life of repentance. But I want it to be Christ in you producing that fruit, not you doing it religiously without Christ. One is a fake called a hypocrite, called self-righteousness, called religion. One is Christianity. One is a fruit meat for repentance. One is a fruit of righteousness. One is a fruit of, of, uh, of holiness. Okay. I want it to be genuine fruit from within. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, temperance. I know I didn't hit them all. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness. Doing good to others, loving one another, doing exploits in his name, healing the sick, raising the dead, and living a righteous, holy, powerful life. But it's because Christ in you, the hope of glory, is living that life through you. Not you doing it on the outside with no relationship with God. There's so many Christians, Christians, who are living a pious, pious, godly life, but there's no relationship with God. I fear to those who will hear one day, but Lord, I've done all these things in your name, but I never knew you. Those are great words to people. Okay. And I'm not here judging anybody. That's not one of my messages. But I am warning. Do you have a relationship with God? Or do you just have a religion? Under the umbrella, Christianity. But there's no Christ in your life. It's just a religion without Christ. Okay? Where Christ is not center, center. Where you're not focused on what Jesus did to the cross and in his resurrection. You're focused on what you do. You're focused on behavior. You're focused on this sin and that sin and living righteous, living godly. And all those things might be wrong and all those things may be. Right, depending on what we're talking about. But do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? If you do, your behavior will show it. But it's just because you have the good behavior, but you have no relationship. Are you a Christmas tree or are you a fruit tree? Are you just adorning yourself with, with pious, good behavior, but there's no life? It's artificial? That's called self-righteousness. Or is there genuine fruit? Because Christ is living in you and Christ is living through you. Know the difference. Okay? See, since we have this ministry, this verse is right after this verse. Change of chapter, the very next verse. Because this is true, he says, therefore. Why? Because what he just said. What he just said in the whole chapter. Therefore, since we have this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me, that is our ministry. And in Romans chapter, I mean, chapter, two chapters later, chapter 5, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Because this ministry 
is connected with mercy. Can't separate Because we have this ministry as we have received mercy. You don't have this ministry because you were good enough. You have this ministry of reconciliation and righteousness and his spirit because of his mercy. Not you. Not what he done. We don't know his heart. See, this is our ministry. Reconciliation, righteousness, and reconciliation. What is not our ministry, excuse me, is the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Those are not our ministries. That's the law. That's not our ministry. My ministry is not to condemn you. My ministry is not to, not to sentence you. Death. My ministry is the ministry of righteousness and the ministry of the Spirit. That is our ministry. Okay? Hopefully that makes it clear. He goes on to say, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, but that faith again, that's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Is that glory? Who? See, the gospel is a who. It's not a it. It's not the words on the page. It's not the e. Who is the image of God to shine on them? See, the God of this age, if our, if our gospel is veiled, well, what are we talking about veiled? Well, we were just talking about veiled right here. And we were talking about veiled right here. What belt what bell are minds? The Old Testament. The law. The law was the veil. In Christ, this law was taken away. <coughs> we now have an unveiled face. So how is it that God is its age and God little G, Satan, that's not God, the most high God. That is God, Lord G, Satan, the God of this age, is blinding. How are they blinding? Let's go back. How were people, how were people's hearts and minds blinded? They were blinded by what? The Old Testament. Their minds were blinded. Their hearts were blinded by the law. The Old Testament. So, the enemy, the God of this age, has blinded people's hearts and down from the gospel. How's he doing it? It's called the law. Is the law against us? No. The law is to bring you to Christ. But Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the father, just like he deceived Eve, the first Adam, he's trying to deceive the bride of Christ, the last Adam. By what, he, what did he do with Eve? He took the scripture and twisted it. Mm. He's doing that the same thing. And he's using the law. Okay? It says in Colossians, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body and sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith. 
dealing with the regard to racism of the bear. Verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. <coughs> Excuse me one second. He has made a lie together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What's the handwriting requirements that were against us? The law. It was handwritten. It was actually written on stone. Do I need to go? I mean, I know how it's time to go back, but let's go back. Written and engraved on stones. The handwriting requirements that were against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He not only nailed it with sin, but he, he nailed your the handwriting requirements to the cross. Why did he do that? In having disarmed principalities and powers, how did he disarm them? He took what was against us. He took what the enemy was using as a veil to blind us. And he came and he nailed it to the cross, having having disarmed them of the law, the ministry of condemnation and death. The accuser of the brother, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, so let no one judge you on food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And, and the list can go on, but he's just giving you some examples. People are around judging people, doing what Satan did, using the law. But Christ he took it out of the way. And he nailed it to the cross. He nailed the ministry of condemnation and death. And he nailed it to his cross. See, the bell was blinding people from the gospel. What's the gospel? According to Romans 1, 16, 17, it's revealing righteousness. Okay? I'm hoping you get this, what we're trying to convey here. So even if our gospel is veiled as veiled as those who are perishing, if we don't preach the gospel that reveals righteousness, instead we preach the law, which is the knowledge of sin, we are veiling people's minds. We are doing what the enemy did. Is the law against the promise of God? No. But until you get a revelation of the New Testament, it will serve a veil... Because it says, go back here one more time. Make sure you get this. For unto this day, the same bell remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. There's a lot of people out there, they are, they don't know it. I'm not saying they're demon-possessed, but they are, they are, Advocating with the devil, back of another term, don't be offended by that, to blind people from the gospel. People who are perishing. They're not helping people get set free. They're actually helping people stay stuck. They don't know it. They're meaning well. They think they're helping people. But actually, they're bringing dishonor. They're actually bringing 
They're doing nothing but accusing. And accusing is not from the thought, from the spirit of truth. It's from the enemy. He's the accuser. Okay. See, I say all this, but I want to go forward here. I'll go there in just a second. But again, the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified. The righteous God is revealed now, but it's been testified by Scripture. But the same Scripture, the Scriptures, they which testify of Jesus. Because there's a testimony. The now the righteousness of God is revealed. You can't be saved by keeping the law. The law is a knowledge of sin. The law is not against the promises of God. But if there was a way through the law where people could be saved, then righteous would come to the law. But instead, the law has confirmed all under sin that the promise may come to those who put their faith in Jesus. Okay. So now the righteous God is, is revealed apart from the law, being witnessed, being testified by the law. Because the law, the scriptures, they testify of Jesus. Not because you keep them. See, Jesus made the statement to the religious leaders. Because he says, you think you have eternal life because you keep the law. The scriptures, they give testimony. They testify of me. Okay? If you peel back the onion, you'll see that. They testify of Jesus. They re righteousness is revealed apart from the law, but it's testified. It's testified by the law, by the scriptures. And those of you who <coughs> attempt to be justified by the law, you become estranged from Christ. You become, Christ becomes of no effect to you because you've fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. Falling from grace is not because you were in sin. Falling from grace is because you, 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 you discounted it. <laughs> if you took, you can't attempt to be justified by the law and be under grace. You can't have that anymore. You can have dry water or cold fire. The two are not synonymous. It can't be unmerited favor and you earn it. You can't have unmerited favor and something that's merited mixed together. It doesn't work. It's like putting new wine into old wineskins. You spoil both. You can't mix the two covenants. You can't mix grace with the law. When you attempt to be justified by grace, you become estranged from Christ. You become alien. Christ becomes no effect to you. You fall from grace. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is how we get saved. So we get free from sin. If you try to be justified by the law, grace can't set you free from sin. You, be, you actually become in bondage. That's why 
We've said this before in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, Ishmael was born of the bondwoman, the law. The law is a bondwoman. It's bondage. But Sarah, which represents grace, is a free woman. Not free to sin, but free from sin. <coughs> There's some religious kooks out there who think that grace is the license of sin. No. And there's some religious cooks on the other side that just think that we're teaching the license of sin. No, you're both wrong. You're both lying to the Holy Spirit. I don't mean, I mean to be blunt, but sometimes you just have to call the spade what the spade is. Grace is not a license of sin. Grace is the power of God to be free from sin. Grace will teach you to deny ungodliness. Grace is a teacher, not a license. People are already sinning without license. You knew how to sin right out of your mother's womb. Once you were old enough to know how to disobey your parents, you knew how to sin. No one had to teach you that. <coughs> you didn't need a license. You did it without it. Every one of us, since we were old enough to rebel, we have. Okay? Why? Because we were... Naturally, we were born from Adam, a sin nature. We not only have sin nature, but we also did sin. But Jesus is of an incorruptible seed. We are born again, not a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible seed by the word of God. Okay, I need to move forward. With closing here, hopefully I have enough time, I want to uh, go to the book of Luke. We're going to read a, a story, this is after the resurrection, and it's called The Road to Emmaus. And I'm going to read this and uh, make some points as we go. Again, we're talking about the testimony of Scripture under the umbrella of being established in righteousness. So, Luke 24, we'll start with verse 16. So this is after the resurrection. Two disciples are walking to Emmaus. And they meet a visitor along the way. He's Jesus, but they don't know it at the time. Okay. So, we'll pick up verse 16. But their eyes were restrained. I just want you to make a footnote of that because we'll talk about their eyes in just a minute. So they were they're walking, they're talking with Jesus, but they don't know it because their eyes are restrained. They did not know. So they did not know him. Now, they just knew him for three and a half years because they walked with him. But, yeah, uh, after the resurrection, they didn't, their eyes were restrained. They didn't recognize him. Okay? That's what's going on. And he, Jesus, said to them, What kind of conversation is that this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And they're talking. They're sad. Why? Because he just died. They don't know that he's resurrected. Okay? They're sad. Their hero, their teacher, their masters, and their minds is gone. Okay? Then the one whose name was Crephas answered and said, I probably pronounced it wrong, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? It's like, it's like, you know, the atomic bomb just went off and went, where have you been? You know, they knew it. And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people. 
And he and that and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our own company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of, the, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. He thought I got to them before, before he died. It's so hard to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. We're talking about the testimony of Scripture. Scripture meaning no testament. It's so hard to believe all that the prophets, these testimonies that are testifying of Jesus, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter, and to enter into his glory? And I love this. And beginning at Moses, the law, Genesis, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I would really like to have that message on podcast. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think he left anything out because he, said, he expounded to them all the scriptures. And I know there's people who've done the list. I think even those lists, we might have missed some. He didn't miss any. All the scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. Because all the scriptures speak to himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, remember the last time he sat at the table with them? Was it Passover, the night before he got crucified? So it was about three days ago? That he took bread, blessed, and broke, and gave it to him. That's the same thing he did his last Passover. He, he broke the bread. He said, and when he did this specific act, I just like looking around right away. Now he just sit down, eat with him at a table again. He took bread, blessed, and broke, and gave it to them. At that moment, their eyes were opened. Remember I said, keep note of that? And they knew him. And at that moment, he vanished from their sight. Now that's going to come into play in just a moment, too. Okay? And then they can respond. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture? So he arose, and that very hour returned to Jerusalem and found eleven and those who were with him gathered together. We'll pick up the story in just a second. I want to expound just for a moment on this phrase, did not our heart burn within us while he opened the scriptures to us. So he just talked about all the things concerning himself. Okay? And he just had, again, he just had communion with them. Okay. I'm assuming there's wine, but anyway, we'll, we'll keep it. At least we have the bread part. Okay. Our eyes were open, he vanished, and then they made this statement, do not hide burn with us while you open the scriptures. But I want to focus on this burning just for a moment. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies how the word of God is like a 
fire. Fire, I don't know about you, but it has a burning sensation. Okay, all right, says the Lord. Again, the hammer that breaks rocks to pieces. Also in Ezekiel, and the, this is a vision that Ezekiel had, and the Son of Man, feed this vision that he was having with God, the, he, the Son of Man, feed your belly, your stomach, and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. I take that scroll as the word of God or a prophecy that became the word of God for us. Okay. Skip down to verse, thir verse 14. And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went into bitterness in the heat, in the what? Heat of my spirit. Now, I don't have time to explain all of this. I've done a study on this years back. This is for my notes. But there's just something here about, about, uh, excuse me, sorry, about this. When the Word of God is being preached and is anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Word, the word is, but the, the, the Spirit of God is involved. There's going to be a burning in your heart, in your belly. Just like the Word of God is like a fire, and just like when you feed your, when you feed your soul, when you feed your belly with the Word of God, there will be this bitterness, but also this heat of spirit. This is also echoed in the book of Revelation. Because John also had a vision of the scroll. I took a little book out of the angels and ate it. So both Ezekiel and John are eating books, prophetically speaking. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate, had eaten it, it was all, my stomach became bitter. Both of them had a bitter sensation. We got the honey involved, but they ate the scroll, but it was just bitter. Anyway, I'm not trying to read in this. I don't have time to develop this for you, but it's just a connection. When I when I read, and then uh, going back here, this whole bitterness and the heat of my spirit is involved. So, I only bring this as a side note. It's not a major thing that I'm bringing out right now. It's not a major thing at all. Um, but there's something about when the Word of God is testifying of Jesus. And we partake of that Word. There will be this heart burning within us. Okay. It's awesome. It's awesome thing. It's a good thing. Don't let that word bitter become a negative thing. It's anyway, just good. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So they go back to Jerusalem to meet up with 11, pick up verse 20, 34. Saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And he told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they made, they made a connection while they were partaking in fellowship in the breaking of bread that he was known to them. He was revealed to them. Okay? And right, you see, I'm mean, I love about this is excuse me, sorry, sorry, sorry. Right when he had this breaking of bread and their eyes opened, he's vanished. And when they're retelling the story to the eleven, and they get to the part where they talk about the breaking of bread. He appears. He vanishes and appears when he gets to this part. There's something very significant about the breaking of bread, which we have taught many times. Now, as they say, said these things, what things? The breaking of bread part. <laughs> Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that he had, they had seen a spirit. Now, we came to pass. As he sat at the table with them, <coughs> excuse me, that he took, whoops, I went backwards. 
Let's go forward. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet. That is I, that is, that is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of boiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Okay, in case you don't get that, well, he's amending the Psalms. So he, Jesus includes that for you. Concerning who? Me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Why am I bringing all of this out? Because there's something about this testimony of scripture. We've seen this many times in this study in the last couple of weeks. Okay, that the scriptures testify of all the things that should happen. Concerning Jesus, concerning our salvation, and it's so, so powerful. Okay, and let me just echo this as we kind of close out this segment of our teachings. Okay, that all scripture, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in what righteousness. That's what we're talking about. That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every, every good work. Paul says this in Corinthians. I'm actually, I think I'm going to pick this up next week. Um, well, I'll, I'll read this here. Um, excuse me. I thought it was somewhere else. No, excuse me. We'll, we'll finish this up. Excuse me. I thought it was somewhere else. For I deliver to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to what? The scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he was rose again the third day according to what? The scriptures. The scriptures testify of the gospel. In the Old Testament, it was Christ concealed, but to us it's Christ revealed. See, when I understand the New Testament, I understand the gospel that reveals righteousness, I can now go back and read. There's not a veil laying on my heart, and I can see the mystery of the gospel being preached in the Old Testament. But until I get a revelation of Christ in the New Testament, it's still down my heart in the Old Testament. I'm hoping you're getting there. Okay? And then in conclusion, my final conclusion this morning. And we already read this this morning, but in Romans chapter 16, God and Paul concludes the book of Romans. By saying this now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's my heart. That you become established in the gospel. That you become established in the preaching of Christ. That's the heart of this whole message. That you become established in righteousness. According to the revelation of the mystery. Kept secret since the world began. But now. Made manifest. And by the prophetic scriptures. That we've been talking about all morning. Made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience of the faith. For by the deeds of the law no flesh is justified. Go back to Romans 3 real quick. For by the law is knowledge but now and the righteous God is revealed apart from the law 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Talk about being established in righteousness. Because a lot I could say in closing, but we've been covering it over the last several weeks. As I said many times, we, we I've broken this teaching into six different segments with six different subtitles. That concludes this morning talking about being the testimony of Scripture. But we're going to start next week, the last of the six segments, which I entitled Behold. Because everything I've taught so far in this teaching, because it's true, there is a way that we need to think. There is a way that we need to focus our gaze and our attention and our focus on. Because we are the righteousness of God in Him. Because we are establishing righteousness. We think different. We talk different. Our focus is different. We see different. We hear different. We read the scripture different. Than those who don't have a revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And so, I'm hoping this makes sense. And we'll expand on this word behold. It's a very powerful word. But we're going to see several scriptures several scriptures that Jesus said, that Paul said, that many others have said, that we need to behold. We need to behold. Okay? It's just not a, it's not a feeling word. It's a very powerful word. It's a very specific word. It's a very intentional word. The word is behold. I'm not sure how long it will take, and then when we're done with that, we'll go to a new teaching. But anyway, so come back next week, and we'll kind of bring the, the last segment of this teaching. And I wish I had a way to really summarize everything I taught in this teaching, but that's why we have it in the archives. This is week 12 or 13 of, of the series so far, and so, uh, anyway, they're all supposed to be read in sequ sequ sequence so that you can get the whole message I'm trying to convey that I just can't get in one setting. So anyway, God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.